Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. All right, good morning. Today we are in Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the opportunity just to read and to, to discuss uh, the message that we have today. I pray, Lord, that uh, anything that is of me will be just lost, but everything that is of you and the meaning and the purpose of uh, this letter is uh, revealed, and Lord, that we can take it with us as we go. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. And bear with me just a second. All right, I think this is going to be fine. Um, <clears throat> Every time uh, I get to prepare and I get to preach, it ends up being a very long ordeal. Um, I start with one direction, and then I end up changing that direction, and then I end up trying to, uh, I'll end up preaching a whole other service to myself, and then I'll finally settle on one. And last night, I was just like, I'm just going to go with this one because I really feel like this is something that's pertinent to uh, where we live in our community and in our society, and especially in Boston and East Boston, that uh, we can take and we can relate to uh, Paul's letter to Titus and what he wanted uh, Titus to take care of in Crete. So just to recap, because we've been gone, well, we've been out of Titus for a couple weeks, and uh, next week we'll actually be out of Titus again. Um, But I just wanted to bring us back, and if you've been gone for uh, this summer, you may have missed some of the things that uh, Kevin had been preaching on in the first couple, well, the first chapter and the first part of the second chapter of Titus. Um, Just to recap, Titus was given a task uh, to go to Crete. There was already some churches that were established, and if you guys don't know where Crete is, it's just off the coast of Greece, and it's a very strategic location, and I want you to kind of like imagine, or as I describe it, to see how Boston is also very similar. It had a lot of ports, had a lot of uh, influence in the uh, Mediterranean. Uh, It was a great place for shippers to bring in goods and to then stop off and then go on to the rest of their location. It was a city that uh, was, had a lot of uh, rich history. Uh, They had a a, uh, rich a religious background, not one like Christianity, but they had a belief that Zeus was their main god, and Zeus was actually born uh, on the island of Crete. And Zeus was a very, and in their, in their way of thinking, was very, um, he was a liar, he was a womanizer, he had, uh, did uh, things that were, um, were very ungodly, but uh, they respected and they, they bragged about that. So one of the things that uh, Titus had to do is he had to go into Crete. There were already some churches that were established in there, but those churches were being led by uh, men that were not upright. Uh, They were uh, teaching things that were either very lawful and uh, legalistic, and then some were actually uh, battling with the the old Cretan ways of uh, being liars and cheats and stealing and and, uh, uh, not living a very godly life. Uh, So... uh, Titus had to go in 
and he had to go and clean some house. He had to bring in uh, new leaders. He had to have establish some uh, sound doctrine. And Kevin had talked about that in a couple weeks ago uh, when he was in chapters 1 and in the beginning of chapter 2. One of the things Titus also needed to do was set up and how to uh, do a new household. Instead of living the old Cretan ways, they needed to change the way they were doing things and to live a more, uh, more godly life, a more Christian life. So the men, needed to be, the men and the women needed to be mature, self-controlled. The young people needed to stay away from sinful lifestyles and to, uh, to come underneath the mentoring of the older adults. And Paul's strategy was very similar. And if you guys know what we've uh, attempted to do in Boston and East Boston with the coffee houses and the church and just being an influence in our community, you can see how Paul's strategy in uh, Crete was to, uh, uh, to make the church an agent of transformation through wise participation in the culture. And if you think about what we've done with the, our strategy, we did not come here, and most of us, uh, our team came from California. We did not come here and try to create Californians. Uh, we came here to, to, to uh, show a lifestyle of uh, a Christ-like living. And this is what Paul attempted, and Paul was wanting to do in, in, on the island of Crete. But let's jump into the, the message. <clears throat> in verse 11, chapter 2, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And, and there's two things that we want to look at and what I want to bring up. <clears throat> and how I've def uh, uh, titled this message, it is Christian Freedom and Christian responsibility. And as we go through this, I'll try to break that up to where you can see there is a lot of Christian freedom. That legalism does not lead to a, a very a loving and sub, a submissive uh, uh, Christ follower. And the responsibility that we need to do and have as Christians in our community. So those are the two things that I wanted to uh, bring to you. And as I'm reading this, I've, I was... And I listened to several different sermons throughout the week. And this week I had listened to a sermon, and it was uh, called The Best Three Hours of His Life. And it was describing the sinner on the cross that uh, submitted to Christ uh, before his death. And on, that, on the cross, they, the, the pastor was talking, <clears throat> and he was talking about how at the very beginning, as all three of them, Christ in the middle, uh, surrounded by two sinners, as the two sinners were on the side and they were jeering just like the uh, people who were um, watching Jesus uh, be crucified and they were jeering at him and saying uh, crude things and save yourself and save us well and, and they were not uh, honoring who he was. But at, one, at some point, one of the sinners turned to Jesus and turned to the other uh, man being crucified and says, do you not know we deserve to be up here. He recognized his sin, and he recognized who Christ was, and I got chills thinking about it. And he said, do you not know? We deserve to be up here. He does not. And he said to Jesus, said, remember me when you enter your glory. And Jesus said to him, he said, surely I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And at that moment, that man, those three hours that he was there suffering with Christ, for the sins that he had done, for the, the crime that he had done, not even for the sins that he had done, just for the crime, he recognized his need for a Savior. And we as well, hopefully, as we're sitting here, we, we also have heard that effectual call of the Father. Um, the Holy Spirit invades our life 
Um, we are justified at that moment, and we, we can recognize because the blinders that have covered our heart to recognize who we are as sinners, we can now see and we recognize and we repent of our sins, and we submit, we submit our lives to Jesus Christ, our, our Redeemer and our Lord, and we begin our sanctification process. And I hope as you're all sitting here that you've already uh, been through this, that, that you heard the effectual call, that, that you've uh, been justified, that you've uh, had the Holy Spirit has invaded you and taken your heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. And at that moment that you are recognizing and repenting that, that you have submitted your life to Christ and, and we're there in that uh, sanctification process. Well, the, the sinner on the cross, he went from the justification to glory. That process that we now sit in, the sanctification process, that every saint that has, has been saved is in this process this process of growth and maturing, he didn't have to go through. That's the struggle that we all face on a daily basis. We have our Christian freedom, but we also have our Christian responsibility. We have our, have our freedom to enjoy the things that are in this world, but we also have the responsibility to, uh, to govern those things, to not be controlled by those things, but to honor God in all that we say and do. Well, if on that day that you... Uh, that you recognize your sin, sinful life and you needed a savior. The probability of the next day, you probably sinned. Just like I did, just like we'll do tomorrow. And, and hopefully we'll repent. And then the next day we'll battle those sins that we still face. Those freedoms that we have. Those difficulties that we go through. We'll still be battling those every day. And, and hopefully we keep going through repentance. Because this is where we're at right now in our sanctification process. See, the evidence of a Christian's maturity is not that they don't sin. It's the speed in which their repentance that once they reveal, that's reveals their maturity. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, in, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. See, the grace that appeared is Jesus, and that's bringing salvation to all people. That grace also trains us. We're not left uh, just, you know, like, uh, like an evangelist that will come over and hand you a track and say, you're now saved, and then, all right, now what do I do with this? Well, God's grace, that is, that Holy Spirit that's in us, guides us and directs us. In Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It is the training of our minds that we are able to understand and also be revealed. I know that uh, I had a privilege of helping a young man walk through his, uh, his, his process of coming to faith in Christ. And at the end, he goes, now what do I do? And I said, well, one, we need to start praying and we need to start looking and evaluating your life, but we need to get you into the word. And he goes, I just have all these sins. I go, well, try not to do everything in one day. Because at that point, you're just going to be white-knuckling it, and you're just going to be barren. But allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what's in your life that needs to be removed. And that process, because God is the good vine dresser, and they will. If we are the branches that are, are in, in, in the vine of Christ, then the good vine dresser will come by and clip the things that are dead that need to be removed. And there's obviously, there's things in our life. Now, he's not going to just come through and just hack everything off. He'll just start clipping away so that we can gain strength and we can see the beauty of living a life that is glorifying to God. So it is the maturity 
um, that, that is revealed in our repentance and coming to faith. It says in John, uh, Jesus said in John 8, 31 through 32, he says, If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's, uh, it's a great line because it is the truth. And we want to know, and we want to know what the truth is. Like, what is the truth? And that's a philosophical question that so many philosophers have uh, uh, battled with. And I was talking to somebody this week and, and trying to know what the truth is. Well, this person says that this is the truth, and, and this religion says this is the truth. And I go, well, then you have to test everything. If you want to test their holy book, test their holy book. But test this holy book and see that it is the truth, that the prophecies that God has given through his uh, prophets to, to show that the, that the Messiah's coming came true. That when he had pronounced judgment on his people, that judgment came true. Historical, historical facts prove that the, the scriptures that we read are the truth. And we can find truth and find justice and love in both those. So there's three things that help us renounce ungodliness. And that is the ultimate goal is to un uh, renounce ungodliness. And I want you to see that when, we were, when I read this, there's two things. It says to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That would be the negative stuff that we need to give up. And then it says to live self-controlled and upright godly lives in this present age. Those are the positive things. You'll hear anybody that cancels, and Kevin's mentioned this several times. If you're going to remove this sin from your life, be ready to replace it with something that's godly. If you're going to stop doing this, then replace it. If you're going to stop watching this movie then add this into your life, whether it be scriptural reading or maybe a sermon. If you're going to remove the, 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 uh, something from your phone, then replace it with something else. It's, just, it's no different than if you are going to replace, and this is one of my biggest uh, weaknesses, um, it's pastries. Um, like, all right, so, well, we have ice cream in our house, and I believe that ice cream is for children and children at heart. Um, so if you're a child at heart, and I'm sure ice cream is something that you love greatly, because my wife is a child at heart, Kevin Scott is a child at heart, and ice cream is their, their number one thing. And if you open up our freezer, we probably have right now six to seven different ice creams, and I'm not joking. I actually sometimes I go, why? And they might just have one or two bites left in them, but this is not a temptation for me. Um, I've been an old man for a long time. I like, uh, I like apple pies and peach cobblers and, and things like that. In fact, I had the best apple fritter in my life uh, this last week in Cape Cod. Um, but that is, that is my weakness, and I can just devour those things nonstop. And if a, a cobbler or a pie was on the counter, I would go by, and I'll never have a whole piece. It's just like back there we have pastries that are cut up. I will never have a whole one. And Julia goes, well, did you have a pastry? And I'm like, well, not a whole one. I, I had six or seven small pieces all the way. So, and, 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 this is, and this is like some of the freedom that we have. But obviously, if I'm going to remove this, and I did for three weeks, I crushed it. I lost six pounds. I had no pastries. And then we went to Cape Cod, and I gained seven. So it's like... <laughs> It happens, and, and, but in three weeks, I devastated it in two, well, a day and a half. Uh, but this is how sin is in our life, too. We'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But if we're going to remove something, we need to replace it with something. And that's what Paul is saying here when in his letter to Titus. is like, remove these things from your life. This renounce ungodliness and renounce the passions of this world and to replace it with self-control, upright and godly lives. 
and that's in this present age. And this is what we can do here in our present age in, in Boston. Boston's not too different than uh, Crete. Uh, there's extreme loyalty. It has an old uh, religious past. Um, it has an understanding of who God is, but not the true God. Um, it has an understanding of who Jesus is, but, but not the true Jesus. And, and that's what we as Christians, we need to do is we need to, to um, be examples of what a Christian life should be. And um, um, and there's three things that can help us in uh, renouncing ungodliness. One of those things is mature godly mentors. And if you don't have a mature godly, I should say spiritually mature godly mentor, I suggest that you find one. Somebody that can speak into your life, that asks you those tough questions. It doesn't necessarily have to be somebody older than you. We're talking about spiritual maturity. That's somebody that's solid in their faith, that is not uh, prone to the things um, that would cause them to, to discredit their, uh, their ministry or their life, their lifestyle. The other one is the Holy Scriptures. This is something that as we are reading the Holy Scriptures and we are renewing our minds, we're pouring, we're pouring the Scriptures over our head, I mean, over our minds on a daily basis. This is not something that's just going to happen here and there. And the other one is the Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit that lives in us. It's God's Spirit that lives in us that is going to help us stay in the, the, on the right path. And I remember as a small child, I always thought the Holy Spirit was going to be something like Jimmy the Cricket. And if you guys remember seeing Pinocchio, and that was his conscience. And, the, and, and it's more than that. The Holy Spirit is obviously much more than that. But it is something that is going to help us to stay true to it. And I don't know if you've ever been like in that moment where you are about to sin. And whether you fall into it or you, uh, you walk away from it, I know that if you are saved and the Holy Spirit is in you, that Holy Spirit is saying, don't do that. Do this. This will give you uh, joy for a moment or some happiness or some pleasure for a moment, but this is what is going to give you lasting joy. And the Holy Spirit will guide you. I, it's, it's the, whether you are going to be driving down that road that leads you to the area, the, the store that you might uh, go into that causes you to sin or to opening up your phone where you might sin, the Holy Spirit is going to like stop. Don't do that. And Jesus said, um, if, you're, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It said, better to go into, uh, in, in, into heaven blind and maimed than it is to go whole into hell. And we, as followers of Christ, we need to, we need to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And I, and I know that some people like to say, well, the devil made me do it. And obviously, we know that the, Kevin's uh, given us the... the uh, the truth that the devil is not bothering you. You are not that special. Um, the devil is one individual, one created being, and it can only be in one spot at one time and tormenting one person at one time where we, we don't even need to have uh, an evil spirit upon us. In 1 Corinthians, and this was my verse, and I, I bought these uh, bracelets, and they're great. They have a little verse on them, and each week you get to pick it up. And last week I was reading this one. This was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I love this. So it says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Let me say that again. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Your temptations are my temptations. And our temptations have been the temptations since the garden. It has always been to promote ourselves, to enjoy ourselves, to, to push our agenda. 
But there is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with, that, with the temptation, he will also provide you the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Um, probably one of the best examples of an escape is uh, when Joseph was in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife was desiring Joseph because he was a handsome young man. And as she was trying to seduce him, he realized this is not where I need to be. And more than likely, he was probably tempted. And it was probably not like he was, oh, I have never been tempted by sexual lust. It was probably a very possibility, a good possibility that he was struggling. But in that moment, he knew that he needed to get out. And what did he do? He dropped his coat, left, and fleed. Now, he ended up uh, going to prison because of the false allegations of, this, of uh, Potiphar's wife. But he endured. And it's better to endure and to honor Christ and to honor God than it is to succumb for our own pleasure and for our own safety. So back into the verses. For the, uh, for the grace of God has appeared. And again, that's Jesus Christ bringing salvation to all people. And that's us. And what does that grace do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. That grace not only enables godliness, but it, it trains us to live holy lives. This cannot happen, and then this is where I'm going to get kind of um, uh, not nice. This cannot happen in just 45 minutes of preaching, and I'm going to try to make it just 45 minutes. 45 minutes of preaching on Sunday. It just cannot happen. And I'm going to give you an example, because the examples are great. Uh, but they're not always perfect. But this example, I, it should kind of like ring to you because we're getting ready to start football season. And I coached high school football for 22 years. Um, and I know what it takes to, uh, to get ready for the game. It's days and days of practice. And in fact, we usually start in January and we start plotting out into where we know the practice schedules and what we will do in those practices months before they actually happen. And we have a game plan for each day and what we're going to address and what plays we're going to put in and the time that goes into it. It's hours and hours and hours of preparation for each practice. Not over in each practice, but each section of practice. So we're going to have an offensive period. We're going to have an inside run period. We're going to have a quick passing game period. We're going to have a two-minute period. And that's just the offense. We haven't even talked about the defense. But we spend hours and hours preparing for a practice, and we uh, spend hours and hours in practice preparing for a game. Now, practice would be like what we do in our spare time, preparing spiritually, coming to church, listening to uh, a message, but then also reading on our own, praying on our own, talking about it, not just, not just doing it by ourselves, but actually engaging and asking questions. Because I want you to think about this. For, for a high school game, a good high school game, a good balanced high school game, you're going to get about 60 plays of offense and 60 plays of defense. So if we take just that 60 plays of offense, and each play will range from, or average from three minutes, or excuse me, three seconds to eight seconds. Three seconds to eight seconds. So if we take six seconds as kind of a, an average, and we go six times 120. So that will be a full game. So 60 defense, 60 offense, uh, a six-second. You're talking about 720 seconds divided by 60 seconds in a minute. You're now talking about a 12-minute football game. So when you sit down and you spend 
whether it's a pro game and there's going to be obviously some more, you're talking about 12 minutes of actual activity. Now, that activity is extremely violent and extremely ex aggressive and, and exhausting. That's why you'll see kids just come off the field just dripping in sweat, and you wake up in the next day, and there's bruises all over your body, and you have no idea how that happened. Uh, that was my life for a long time. But... <clears throat> But you'll see that there is so much that goes into those just preparing for those 12 minutes. Well, when you go out into the world to whether you're going to work or recreation or watching something on TV, you need to be preparing yourself for those temptations that will happen, and they will. And your example of how you're going to be living your life and what everybody else is going to be seeing is needs to be prepared for these things that could happen. Because in a game... Those coaches have no idea what's going to go on. We don't know who's going to get hurt, what penalties are going to be called, and you have about 10 seconds to make a really good decision so you can make sure that you're preparing your team to be the very best. So when we are ready and there's a temptation or there's something that comes up and you're not prepared and you stumble or you fall, or you fall into your temptation, you fall into your sin, it's not a mistake. A mistake is when you make a wrong turn or you miss the off-ramp. That's a mistake. When you stumble and fall into your sin, that sin is what is ungodly. And those are the things that we need to prepare for, and those things are, can only be prepared for in our time of preparation. And that time of preparation is reading, praying, uh, talking to other people, having a mentor, someone that, that you could, but most importantly is listening to the Holy Spirit when you were prompted, when you were tempted. In the 80s, there was a uh, movement called Lordship Salvation, and Lordship Salvation was really promoted by um, Reformed uh, theologians. And that Lordship uh, Salvation was saying that you are to submit your life to Christ, that not just in your salvation, but also in your daily life. And I agree with this. The hard part about that is so many people would take that to the full extreme and then start legalizing everything. And this is one of the things that Paul had to address through Titus with the Cretans is that they were saying, no, you can't do this. And you know you can't do this. And they were removing any of the Christian liberties. And in this Lordship Salvation, some people actually took it that far to where there you were saying, if you do this, well, you're probably not saved. And if you did this sin, and you're probably not saved. And that's where we start to struggle. And we're like, going, well, wait a minute. There are freedoms. And probably two of my, two of my biggest heroes, well, I, have a, I have a Mount Rushmore of uh, spiritual leaders. One of them is probably the greatest example of uh, Christian uh, freedom. And the other one would be Christian responsibility. I, my Christian freedom is uh, Charles Spurgeon. It was Said many a time, he drinks brandy to the glory of God. And I'm thinking, I don't like brandy, uh, but I can see how that could be something. And there are some things that are our freedom in Christ, in our control, not to be dominated by them. But then there's also the responsibility, and my responsibility is um, a pastor that I like is uh, Paul Washer. And if you haven't heard him, the number one thing he talks about is making sure, repent, 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 <laughs> and repent. Um, <laughs> And he's great. So those are two of my Mount Rushmore guys. Um, and, I, and I like dead guys because uh, they don't make mistakes. Um, but I have two dead guys and two living guys. And it sounds terrible, but one of the hard parts about it is like when somebody is that you want to lift up as like, man, this is somebody I want to model after. And all of a sudden they just fail. And you're like, crap. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of things to go into that. But one of the, uh, one of the the uh, more contemporary ones is the grace movement. And this grace movement is what we're seeing now. 
where there is just all kinds of just grace. There's not a, a requirement to live a, a holy life. That is, that is your salvation. That's the most important. We just got to get people saved. We just got to get people saved. And this is not just something new. If you go back to um, the early 1800s, and uh, before that, we had the Puritans, and they were the um, focused on the Scripture and knowing Scripture and living a godly life. And then in the early 1800s, it kind of like moved into a more of a free and just an experiential thing. And this contemporary grace movement is also that. It's just sort of focusing on salvation, making sure people are saved, and then kind of like letting them go because we just want to make sure people are saved. We just got to get people saved. But the problem with that is that when we are now living in the marketplace and we are, are working in the marketplace and living in our communities, if all we've been focusing upon is the salvation side, and that's all we have to worry about, then we also then will discredit ourselves at times. As a result of understanding God's grace, which is his unmerited divine favor and mercy, it is natural for us to suppose that if our good works are, do not determine God's grace and blessings upon us, why be concerned about godliness and upright living? Since we are saved by grace, in which we are, and secured by the Holy Spirit, then, then why bother with all these rules and regulations, their freedom abounds. And it says, if I am saved by, excuse me, if I'm saved, why bother going to church? And I've had that question asked to me so many times. If I'm saved, why bother going to church? What's it there for me? It takes away my Sundays, but I'm glad you guys are here. I'm hoping you guys are being blessed by it. But why, why, go by, why bother going to church? Why bother sharing the gospel with somebody? If, if God's grace is going to save them, why bother doing all this stuff? And I had a friend in California and uh, he was a very spiritual man, very, very loving, knew his Bible inside and out. And he struggled with his denomination because I said, well, what is it that you don't like? He goes, we don't evangelize. We don't go out and share the gospel. We feel that if someone's going to get saved, they're going to walk through the door. And I was like, oh, my gosh, but you're missing out on the opportunity to be a part of that. That's, that's, the, that's the goal. So that, that's what we've been required to do. Jesus didn't say, go and be doctors. Go and, and make sure you're a good lawyer. and Go and make sure you're a good athlete. He said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity. But we have been given marching orders. Why not be a part of that? And if all things are lawful, why not indulge? And that's part of what the, the grace movement is. He said, why not just indulge? And that's, there's always going to be the extreme because you'll say grace is important. Living uh, Christ as your Lord is important. And, and the truth is there, but everybody wants to take it to an extreme and, and bastardize it. The truth is that it's both. Christian freedom, Christian responsibility. 1 Corinthians six twelve, All things are lawful for me. And this is what Paul was saying to the Corinthians. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful to me, but... I will not be dominated by anything. <clears throat> Romans 5, 26 uh, through 6, 4. Now the law came to increase the trespasses. And then this is what I want you guys to pull from this. This is one of my, my favorite uh, section of verses. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that's wonderful. Because your sins, no matter, and I think about this because I, I, I know people who I would love to be because they haven't sinned as much as I have. And I could say, man, I wish I was that person, that I don't have to carry the past burdens. The, the memories, the, those, those 4K memories that I have, I could just say I don't, never even saw that, never even had to experience that. But I know that in sin, 
grace abounds more. The more sin, the more that someone has sinned, the more they have great, they are grateful for the forgiveness of those sins. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? And this is the question that Paul asked. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death and were buried? Therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That is our, our effectual call uh, through salvation. This newness of life is in Christ alone, totally. Our newness of life, life is in Christ alone and prompted daily in the guidance by the Holy Spirit. See, the Cretans were still, who were still living in Crete, but, by, but now they were Christians. So they were still living in this, this world. No different than we still live in East Boston and we still work in Boston and we still have to maintain these, uh, uh, these lives that we, are, we, we work in and live in. But we are different than the, than the rest because now we're, we are Christians and our Christian life needs to be exemplified. The old identity needed to be taken to the back seat. These Cretans needed to remove what they had normally put forward as who they were whether, the, you know, you'll hear this, I'm American. Well, that's fantastic, but are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, then you're a Christian first. Your location can change because God can pick you up and move you someplace else that he needs you to be. So right now, you are a Christian. You're a Christian here. You're a Christian over there. And your Christian life needs to be the front. Uh, be the front. And in their identity, that needed to take the back seat. Their new identity and their new responsibilities were what were important. And uh, this was one of those hard moments, and I'm going to share something about myself. There was a time when I was in my um, late 20s. I was maybe 27, I think 28. Maybe I just had, Julie had just had Abigail, our oldest child. So that was a long time ago. And um, I was coaching football, and we had gone up on a, a retreat, all the coaches. And, and all day long, we had been rafting one of the uh, dangerous rivers of, in California. And there was, we weren't wearing, wearing life vests, and I was the... The, uh, the guide on the, uh, on the raft, and we were getting thrown out left and right. These, uh, these rapids were pretty bad. The water was high at that point. And I had been talking about uh, Jesus all day long, and I was talking about uh, the church that I was attending, what I'd been learning, and I was really just boasting. Not boasting, I was talking a lot about Jesus. Um, and later that evening, we started playing cards, and, and we started having some beers, and at one moment, I said something that I shouldn't have said. And one of the guys there uh, looked at me square in the face, who was not a believer, and he goes, and you call yourself a Christian? And it cut me. It was one of those moments I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that. And I shrunk back into myself. I, I sat there, and I was like, I can't recover from this because what I had been doing in the morning did not resemble what I had been doing that night. And it was tough. It was tough. And it was like, it was a year and a half later that I came, I ran into that guy because our, our uh, ways had parted. And I met him in, a, of all of things, uh, a blockbuster uh, video rental place. This was a long time ago. 
Uh, I had to explain that. Yeah, this was a long time ago. But I, I walked to him. I go, hey, I want to thank you. And I told him of the scenario, and I told him what he had said to me. And he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And I go, no, I needed to hear that because what I had been doing is taking my Christian freedom, and I was bastardizing it, and I was forgetting my Christian responsibility. And I was not being an example of what Christ wanted me. I was not living a godly life. In the morning, I was fine, but in that evening, I had failed. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, it says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant that I might win more of them. This is Paul. He says, To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became under the law, though not myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And you see a pattern? He's being what people need to be one. It says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. To do it all for the sake of the gospel. Let me say that again. To do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. This is the motivation that Paul took towards everything that he did. Can you imagine doing everything with the motivation that you might win some? Verse 13 says, Waiting for the blessed hope, which is Christ, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's another little example of the Trinity. Who gave himself for us, just like Paul is sacrificing his God, Jesus gave himself for us for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The second question in the Catechism of the uh, Second London Baptist Confession, the Catechism is just some question and answers type of things, and it's really great to, it's, it's good to learn and it's good to help yourself out. But the second question, it says, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And the end is, uh, what is the purpose? What is the greatest joy that we can have? What is the greatest thing that a man can, and I should say a, a person can have? And this says, the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It does not matter what you're doing if you are glorifying God in what you do and enjoying him forever. Those are the greatest things you're going to uh, be able to accomplish. It is not uh, the education that you get. It's not the money that you make. It's not the places you visit. It is glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. You can be a lawyer, a doctor, a truck driver, a barista, a dog walker. doesn't matter if you are glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. That is the greatest end of your life. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, give, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. And now I'm coming to an end, so this is going to, we're doing really well. The gospel must, uh, and this is for the Christians and also for us, the gospel must prove itself in the market square. It can't be hidden in our homes. It has to be out there. It must be seen. And yet, if we live identically 
to the culture that God has placed us in. And we've all, we are all here. This is not an accident. It is God's sovereign will that you are here, that you've come back to here, that you've moved away and come here, or you've just left your home and come here. You are here for God's sovereign will. If we live identical to the culture that God has placed us in, how is the gospel compelling? What is drawing people to us? What is the attraction? The Christian way of life must be based on God's generous grace, Christ's redemption of sinners, and a call to a new life guided by the Holy Spirit. If we are not, if we are not recognizing that God's generous grace has brought us here, that Christ's redemption for us on the cross has paid for us, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit seals and secures us as we go, we're missing, we're missing the whole thing. If we do not live a Jesus style, if we do not live Jesus style in our culture, we risk discrediting God's word and his grace. And we take advantage of our Christian freedoms and neglect our Christian responsibilities. I hope that as, as we've gone through this whole, uh, these whole set of uh, verses that you've been able to see that there is some things that we need to remove from our lives, and there's some things that we need to add into our lives. There are some things that we can enjoy in our lives and some things that we need to put to a side. So the questions, and just before uh, Tony and Rebecca come back up here, some real easy questions. What is the sin that the Holy Spirit is revealing to you that just needs to stop? I mean, I, I could say right now, stop and think, what is, what's in your life that you need to go through? And I probably guarantee you, you've probably, when we were doing communion, went, yeah, I need to stop that. You know, that's a problem that's in my life. We all have them. It's, uh, it's like the, uh, the ice cream or the pastries. It's, it's we all have something that we are weak to. What is yours and what do you need to change? What needs to stop? The flip side of that question on the positive is, what godly behavior or habit is the Holy Spirit revealing to you that needs to start? Are we, are we lacking in our prayer life? Are we lacking in our scripture reading? Are we lacking in our uh, Christian fellowship? Um, are we la- are lacking in, um, in our communication and our gospel presentation? Are we lacking in our evangelism? If the Holy Spirit's leading you and guiding you, take advantage of that. Use that. The next question, what activities and habits, passions, do you feel the Holy Spirit is prompting you to stop? Now, we have the sins, but we also have some activities and passions. Um, giving up something, whether it's, it's simple like a pastry, give up a pastry. But there are certain activities that we do. And I was talking to somebody uh, yesterday, and they spent two hours rolling through TikTok. And you're like, really, there was nothing inherently evil about this, but that was a waste of time. It, that, that person could have been doing something. They were upset with themselves by doing that, but they could have been doing something else. They could have been listening to a sermon. They could have been reading their, uh, their Bible. They could have been having a gospel conversation. They could have just been talking about theology and doctrine, anything that has that Christian fellowship or to advance the gospel. But if we're doing things like that, then those are the things that we need to stop. How can we take that have been on the positive side? What activities and habits, passions do you feel that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to start to glorify Christ in? Whether you're on the soccer team or you're playing basketball down at the courts or you uh, are learning like I'm working on my latte art. How can I take that passion and then glorify God with it? There's, there's work that needs to be done. There's enjoyment that we can have, but there's also responsibilities. 
And we need to recognize where our Christian freedoms are being abused and where our Christian responsibilities are falling to the wayside. We need to have a balance of both of those, but we can ultimately glorify God in our actions and our attitudes. I hope that this has been helpful. Um, I really enjoyed it. Again, this is uh, one of my favorite things is to be able to talk about theology, talk about doctrine. We hit on a couple of things. We talked about uh, uh, the effectual call and being saved through Christ alone. Um, But if that is something that has not taken place in your life, I'd ask that you don't leave here. Um, We're not going to have an altar call that you have to come up. But if you have questions... If you're unsure of your salvation, you're unsure of what Jesus has done for you uh, in paying for your sins on the cross, ask. Don't leave today without knowing. Uh, if you are uh, in the body of Christ, seek, seek Christ first and his majesty and his glory. Add to him everything to your life. Submit your life to him. Uh, that is the That is the good and uh, honoring, glorifying thing. Remember, the chief end of our life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for uh, Your Word. Um, Something so many years in the past where Paul had instructed Titus to do so much work in Crete that this is so similar to what we need to do here in Boston. We need to make sure that as we are living our lives, Lord, that you are glorified in them. That every passion that we have, every statement that we make, that every uh, deed that we do, that it is for your glory. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. Amen.